Hey everyone, Jeff here. Our patrons are able to join us before we record our episodes to discuss each book that we cover. And on October 10th, we gathered to discuss Ellen Kushner's Swords Point. Since it was such a fun conversation, we've decided to release it to you for your listening pleasure. I hope you enjoy it, and if you ever want to participate, please head on over to patreon.com slash appendix n book club and join our ranks. One of us. One of us. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hey, Dan. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Really good. Thank you. How's it going, Joseph? Hello. Hello, Adam. Hey. Howdy, hoy. Hey. Hello, Rick. Hi. I think this is the full roster for today. Indeed. What is this? Episode 106? 107. Yes, 107. So, hey, everyone. Welcome to our discussion about Ellen Kushner's Swords Point. Did I also share the spoiler with you all about other exciting Ellen Kushner news? She is not that I've heard a wizard of Earthsea. <gasps> wow. Brilliant. Yeah, that's going to be really fun. So, um, yeah, let's go ahead and start with which edition of the book we are working with. What you got, Rick? I had the Kindle edition, so I don't have it here with me right now. So I don't know what year it was published, but whatever is available on Amazon for the Kindle edition. Perfect. I'm not sure if that's the same one, but I've got the Bantam Spectra ebook that's got this really boring cover that's just kind of a house. Um, oh, and also when Ellen Kushner um, saw that we were covering this book, she was really glad that well, when we posted the image of, oh, maybe someone will have that book and I'll, I'll share. She, she says that there's one, one book cover that has the right cover. So we'll see if anybody's working with that. Hoy, what do you have? I have the Tom Canty. The right yeah. yeah, well, Tom Canty. Tom Canty is, um, I think, a friend of hers, and he's in that sort of circle of um, people who were sort of came up in the late 80s. Um, so it's a marvelous cover. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I found it a strain of all things. I've literally had it for 30 years and not read it. And then so I'm glad this project is kicking, making make me read it. Heck yeah. How about you, Adam? I have Bantam uh, Spectra with, I think this is also Tom Canty really it's really beautiful oh now i'm confused maybe that's the one she said was the right cover now i don't remember i was combining those two in my head as the same cover but those are totally different covers yeah that's a later one from like the early 2000s i believe yeah oh then i bet hoy you have the right one because i i usually post the ones that were around um as close as possible to the late 70s early 80s Mm -hmm. so okay so it's still probably the one hoy has how about you, Joseph? Well, I read it on my Kindle, but I also have the one true cover <laughs> that I bought uh, in 1991 at uh, Schinder's in Bloomington, Minnesota, where I was working at the time. Nice. There you go. And Dan, what do we got for from you? So I have the same one as Adam uh, with the the cover by Tom Canty and the praise from George R. R. Martin from 2003. Perfect. And does anybody have any high Gaxian candidates they would like to share with Hoy? Yeah. Cause especially I was not specifically looking forward. So if you got one, let's have it. <laughs> nope. I thought there'd be I, a lot more in this 
book, but I, I didn't encounter that many that stood out. Right, right. It's, it's really incredible because the prose is incredibly beautiful, but it's not in any way sort of um, pretentious. It's not flowery at all. Yeah, yeah. The closest I would come is uh, Chase Lounge because I had always understood that word as Chase Lounge, L-O-U-N-G-E. And then I kept seeing it in the book and U-G, like, like tongue. Yeah. 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 yeah, L-O-N-G-U-E. And at first I was, that's a weird typo. And then I looked it up and discovered that I was wrong. And also a Chase Lounge is more than just the nylon webbed long lawn chair with the fold out foot section. There you go. So, I think it's a very good candidate. Um, yeah. And building on that, it reminds me of I, when I was a kid, I thought I was so smart because we were all my family. We, we were playing the Trivial Pursuit Genius Edition. And then I discovered as an adult that it's actually the Genus Edition. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, the irony. It's also like I used to type up D&D character sheets on my typewriter, and I discovered after a few years of doing that that I'd been spelling intelligence wrong. <laughs> I was spelling it intelligence. <laughs> Anyways, so, um, yeah. So, Rick, what are your thoughts on Ellen Kushner's Swords Point? So I thought it was really interesting. So for these books, I don't research them beforehand. I want to go into them cold and just enjoy them. So I was kind of surprised then when I was reading in Wikipedia how it's a seminal LGBT fantasy novel and so on. I just thought it was a fantasy novel and two of the main characters just happened to be in a relationship together. And I didn't feel, and I mean this in a good way, that it's like it was positioned as just such a, a normal thing that it was just by the by that the main plot was the main thing, not the fact that there was an LGBT element. So I thought that was quite interesting. And, you know, when she wrote it in, I think it was 87, when it was published in 87, I'm sure that was more risque, but it might be because I live in San Francisco and I'm in the creative industry that I was like, well, that's kind of fairly normal, fair, so to speak. So I was like just enjoying the, the actual novel part of it. And she, one thing that got me though, she kept calling them, swords but she never described like is it a rapier which i assumed it was but she had a lot of talk about the sword fighting but not about the actual swords themselves that was the one thing that she obviously clearly researched part of but then didn't research another part or just assumed everyone would know what kind of sword it was just because sword is in the title mm -hmm. and there's so much mention of swords but it was never really detailed as to what type of sword they all had right he just mentioned once or twice that he has this sword that he's carrying around, but like they're all just tools of the trade to him. He's not like a, a finicky person, uh, Richard St. Peter, who like, oh, this is my my little pointy rapier for this, 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 but this is my, you know. But a couple of times he does mention like, oh, this is a heavier sword or this is a lighter sword. But he doesn't um, say this is a rapier, this is a right, right. whatever, this is whatever. Right. And I have heard though, because I was a little bit of a sword nerd for a while, that a lot of uh, urge for classification really didn't come up until the Victorian era in the 19th century. Before that, people would just go, oh, this is an arming sword or this is my, you know, war sword. Right. So. Yeah, I don't remember exactly at what point this happens, but I do recall a description of St. Veer's sword as being uh, lighter and pointier than most serious swordsmen would carry. Um, so they, she definitely describes them, but you're right. She doesn't use like kind of... This doesn't name them. Yeah. <clears throat> It's always the general term. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Adam, what were your impressions? I thought it was really, a, it was, it was a good story. 
I was like reading all this bragging that they were doing at the, at the beginning of the book, you know, all the like blurbs saying, Oh, it's the greatest thing ever. I'm like, well, we'll see, you know, it's pretty <laughs> good, man. Like I, there are times I couldn't put it down and, you know, very suspenseful strikes me that Alec is kind of a high maintenance uh, boyfriend. I would say <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like, you wonder why I say, uh, say beer puts up with him, but Love is strange, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely with Adam. That um, I, I, I just loved the idea that all the way through I was completely off balance and just not not quite knowing what was going on. And it, it, as we got the shifts of perspective um, and the different points of view, gradually building a, a picture, but just not knowing. And and like when you get to that climactic fight um, between. Um, uh, between St. Vera and, um, and, and and Michael's tutor, that I I, I really didn't know what was going to happen. And I thought it was mm. perfectly plausible. It's like, you know, is Richard the protagonist or actually is it Michael? And, you know, is Richard going to die here? And I thought that was fantastic that, um, that, that, that she was able to maintain that level of, of tension. And, you know, and the characters were really well drawn. And I thought she was brilliant at evoking real moments and feelings, like when lust is suddenly extinguished. And, you know, it, it was terrific. Absolutely. I agree with that completely. How about you, Joseph? Oh, I have loved this book for 30 years now. Um, I, I Going back to Rick's point, when I first read it back in... 1991 or 1992 or whenever it was honestly the fact that it was two men in a relationship i think to an extent just kind of drifted past me because it's so matter of fact um and it's just and it's just a part of what's of what's going on because you have all of the intrigues and the betrayals and the sword fights and the running down snowy streets and um it is i i I love this book yeah i i i really really enjoyed reading this um in response to alec being a high maintenance boyfriend i wonder if ellen kushner was kind of inspired by oscar wilde and bosey because like Mm -hmm. all that i've heard of bosey was that he was a very bratty high maintenance um kind of snobby little fuck turd (laughs) Um, so i don't know i wonder if if part of it was inspiration from that but yeah it's interesting because uh, you know this is a a a very renowned fantasy novel but in terms of fantastic elements this is a city that doesn't really exist a culture that doesn't really exist and homosexuality and bisexuality are completely accepted at this point in the undetermined past. So those are some of the fantastical elements, but we don't have magic or monsters or things like that. So I'm curious if any of you have any thoughts about this book being labeled as like a fantasy great. Well, I didn't think it was fantasy, but I mean, it could be fantasy, but it doesn't seem like the, the only fantastical element is that it's a a city somewhere, maybe medieval, maybe not. But I felt that she was really doing that. She didn't tie it down to anything in particular so that nobody could criticize and say, well, you know, at that time in that place, you know, it was a 
you were shunned if you had a gay relationship. So, so I think she deliberately made it non-specific. And I think if she had made it a specific place with dragons or whatever, people would have poo-pooed it too much. But she she wrote the clever line, almost like a portrait of Dorian Gray, where it's like, it's kind of, it's um, interstitial, I think, is the phrase that she uses, where it's not really one thing and not really the other. And I think that was very deliberate because she then championed the interstitial art movement later on, which is like to do with genres that are like the in-between two genres, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, yeah, I, I'm actually currently reading the third book in the series, The Fall of the Kings. And in that one, it's been a long time since I read it previously, so I don't remember the full details, but there's at least implication that there were wizards and some very subtle level of magic back in the distant past. Um, but yeah, in at least the first and the second books there's nothing overtly fantastical having said that i almost think that it had to be shelved as a fantasy because fantasy readers are more willing to read a book without magic than non-fantasy readers are willing to read a book with no connection to any actual place Mm -hmm. almost Grostarkian, except that still implies a non-existent location in an actual in, in the actual world. Right. And it's interesting the actual paperback that we have, it is published by Tor Fantasy, so it is a fantasy imprint. But there's very light on the sort of the cover copy, say, you know, a fairy tale, but it's very light on, you know, they don't imply any uh, other fantastical elements, right? In in the way the, the promotional text. It just says, you know, a bravura performance, a tale of intrigue and danger, romance and power, um, a story you will never forget. Okay. Uh, the ALA says fantasy world, but again, nothing in specifically the people who are actually publishing or saying it's a fantasy, right? It's always like the perceptions of people about the book is that it's a fantasy. Yeah. Um, and in the, in, in the version that Adam and I have at, at the end, Alan Kushner takes uh, as her inspirations, Shakespeare. Um, a, a historical novelist about Paris and Damon Runyon's New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and obviously within the, uh, I mean, obviously Dangerous Liaisons is, is also a, a very clear inspiration and the play with, within the story, you know, more or less has the plots of Dangerous Liaisons. Now, Joseph, you were mentioning so you, that, you know, sort of the LGBT, um, it's not even subtext, it's text, sort of just like it didn't really, you know, resonate with you as a thing. I mean, it was just so perfectly integrated into the story. I didn't read this. I mean, I remember this was written at the height of, you know, the AIDS epidemic and all that was happening, um, you know, in the, and so it, uh, late eighties, early nineties, um, obviously a lot, a lot of other things were happening in the urban uh, environment in the, in the United States. I don't know about the UK, which had the uh, crack, crack epidemic, all these things like that. Um, so did any of that resonate with you at the time saying, Oh, wow, this is a, uh, you know, this is some kind of weird reflection of our world, even though it's not literally our world. Not especially. I I don't see anything in there that would that really felt like a, a metaphor for any of those kind of concerns, except insofar as it's about people who spend all their time going around and getting other people killed. Right. <laughs> yeah, I and I where I heard that, but I I, I heard this book described as a bunch of bisexuals killing each other disaster gays 
No, because I was curious. I, I, I guess when we have her on our show, we'll have to ask her, like, in the context of when she was writing, what 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 things she was thinking about as well. I'd be really fascinated to know. But, but I really felt, uh, as much as Alec was troublesome, he felt very plausible to me. I've seen people who have some of those sort of both self-destructive uh, traits, but they're also sort of, they, they uh, resonate outwards too, right? And also, there's, there's, oh, yeah, go ahead. I know that I tend to struggle when I'm reading a book that has just too many characters. And especially if it's like political intrigue with a bunch of characters, I can really lose track of which one is which. I wasn't struggling with that in this book. The characters really each stood out so uniquely on their own, similar to like Mervyn Peake, like Mervyn, like with Mervyn Peake, that's, you know, um, with um, Titus Crone, that's also the kind of story that I would likely normally like have a really hard time keeping track of all these characters, but I didn't with this or with peak. Mm-hmm. Adam, did you have particular thoughts about the characters in this story? I thought that they were, like you say, they were all distinct and they all had like, uh, you could tell they all had a story behind them. Mm-hmm. Like uh, Catherine, the servant had her whole story behind her. And uh, I thought, um, particularly well drawn was uh michael i kind of liked his character it's like he's this like playboy aristocrat you know who's just running around you know getting laid having fun you know and then he decides to take something seriously you know and and buckle down and it's like that whole arc of his character was kind of kind of if he felt like a real person they all did they all felt like like, you know, they were real people, you know, like, uh, you know, with uh, backstories. Yeah, I really liked our introduction to um, to Lord Michael, especially, you know, when he's climbing down the drain pipe and recognizing that this feels like this is like right out of a comedy. Um, and he's just kind of like laughing at the absurdity of this moment. And then he's overhearing the conversation inside of like the woman who he had just been making love to and her husband. And he's now realizing he's been used and that she was just using him to make him jealous and like maybe knock her up because like they need an heir. And so then as he's escaping, he runs into Lord Horn in the carriage and he remembers how handsome he was back in the day. But it's kind of dark in the carriage, but whatever. But he's but he can tell that like Lord Horn is like totally hot for Michael. So he's like, all right, well, here's somebody who appreciates my beauty and wants to be with me because like I'm hot. So let's go ahead and do this. So they go back there and they start making out, but then the servant comes in and when that door opens and we get the full light right onto Lord Horn's face, uh, Lord Michael's like, Oh, this guy has aged quite a bit since I remembered him last. (laughs) And I just, I thought that that whole thing was so perfectly done. And I was like believing every moment of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just the, the, the ability of people to sort of like lash out a little bit for something that to someone who is sort of the innocent victim, uh, as much as are any innocent victims in this story, because of some other dissatisfaction that they have that's going on in their life. That, I mean, that's what Alex is doing. That's what Michael is doing in this moment. Mm-hmm. Right. And it turns out that Michael was actually the lover of also the lover of the husband right, in that scene, right? Bertram, right? Because, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, that. Right, because Bertram, because there's all these other scenes where Bertram is like, you know, cozying up to him in some of these other social contexts, right? So, 
if I'm if I'm not misremembering, Dan seems to agree with me on that one, right? That that's the correct reading, right? Yeah, well, exactly. So when he was um, uh, having his tryst with Olivia, uh, Bertram thought he was supposed to be meeting uh, Michael somewhere else, and was re- was really miffed that he didn't turn up. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so he's he's using Bertram, and, and as Jeff said, yeah, uh, Livia turns out to be using him. Rick, were you particularly drawn to any specific characters? So I did like Michael as well because he seemed so much more human. I gravitated away from Alec, who just seemed, like you said, a difficult boyfriend um, to have. Definitely drawn to Richard and then Vincent Applethorpe. The two swordsmen you felt were just in it for the pure craft mm-hmm. of being a swordsman. They didn't have all these political foibles or goals. They were just they just wanted to be excellent swordsmen. So either of those, I was very sad when Vincent died, but because um, you felt no, no, he he wasn't like one of these shitty characters trying to push their own political agenda. He was just just trying to train people to be good swordsmen, and he took Michael in on, under his wing, and he was really trying to make him like him, like a great swordsman. So either of the swordsmen I'd say I would gravitate to. Yeah, I really like the way that um, Ellen Kushner really drew the um, the different swordsmen so differently and why they're interested in what they do. You know, for example, we've got this um, Hugo Seville character who, you know, he will do weddings, he will do shows, he will teach people but he's actually like kind of a coward in reality. Like he doesn't actually take hard jobs where he actually might get seriously injured or killed, but he makes a ton more money than St. Beer does uh, because like he's just willing to take on all these crap jobs that are like more for like the glory or more for the, the fame than the actual, the craft or the honor where somebody like St. Veer, he's just really focused on doing things that feel important to him as a swordsman um, opportunities to really hone his craft and challenge himself. So it's cool having these different characters to kind of contrast against. And it also feels real. It's like artists. There are artists who are, who are, who would much prefer to, you know, work away in poverty and do things that really matter to them. And then there are people who are, you know, doing, high pay graphic design work for marketing companies. Um, <laughs> like it, 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 that also felt very real. Or so like when I approached more. you guys, it's like when I approached you guys about doing the logo, you're like, Oh no, no, we, we can't afford it. No, no, no. I'm not looking for money. I just want to do it for the craft. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you remember. Exactly. You're, you're, you're mm. our St. Veer. <laughs> I'm also Richard. Right. <laughs> um, and perception is really interesting because each of the characters have their way of perceiving things. And also, um, Dan, you you pointed out, like I think you were talking about the duel and not knowing how it was going to go. One of the other equally interesting scenes in terms of like how time was being sliced and perception was happening was when Richard was at the play. And he's because he's not a guy who's he's illiterate. He's not a guy who he's like, oh, I don't want to see plays. But then he's like parsing the play and you see these little f- fragments. It's almost as if he's like, in an intellectual duel with the material, right? The play. And he's like, oh, this is what's happening. Oh, I think I understand what's going on here. This is what's going on. And that that whole scene with him at the play, with all the other things that are swirling around there, all the other sort of social, you know, undercurrents that are going on that he's not even aware of, uh, and him focusing on the play itself, right? It's really fascinating. I think that's another really bravura set piece in terms of this novel. 
I would agree. And I would also add to that the um, the moment of the fireworks on the barge, that whole section where suddenly we're going back and forth with very short sections between Richard and Michael. And we're really kind of contrasting their experiences against one another. And I thought that that scene was also very effective and very engaging. So Joseph, as somebody who read this book a long time ago and is reading it again now, what is different about the experience this time? Just picking up things that I'd missed before, like Chase Lounge, um, <laughs> but also I, and some some of this is is happening just just during the course of the discussion here. But I'm actually getting a little bit more sympathy for Lord Horn, mm-hmm. despite the fact that he's one of the two main villains of the piece because he just thinks that he knows how everything works and he's just acting according to his understanding of the rules and he doesn't realize that St. Vincent or St. Veer um, does not play by those rules and and he gets pushed by Alex's rejection or uh, Michael's rejection, sorry, and then when uh, Alex sends the really snotty note back to right. him, refusing the commission, that's what right. really right. triggers things. And the fact things. that he's being manipulated by Ferris. Ferris yeah, and, 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 and Ferris, lady. we haven't even, we, we yeah. haven't even mentioned Ferris right. yet, who is also the one who's thinks that he's this great puppet master sitting off in the shadows, pulling everybody's strings and... <laughs> And right. you discover it's the Duchess at the end. But really. Right, the Duchess, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I do like that also scene when Rich, um, Michael comes and visits the Duchess, and I think it's about two-thirds of the way through, and it just, oh, do you think that we all we have to offer is our bodies? You know, and she's like, and that's when you sort of, sort of really start to twig. I mean, Richard sort of twig, twigs a little earlier that there's there's something more to her, right, going on, and she's not just, a, you know, a socialite. Because <clears throat> at the start, you end up being very dismissive of her. That scene with the three women in the, the drawing room almost okay. having tea or whatever yeah. Uh, yeah, you, she's so snippy about everything they say and you just i remember mentally dismissing her and then like you realize much later on how important she is to everything that's going on yeah, yeah. i um i love that scene where we first met her and actually that's one of my quotes i've got here um both were clothed in billowing yards of soft exquisite lace giving them the look of two goddesses rising from the foam their heads, one brown and one silver fair, were perfectly quaffed, their eyebrows finely plucked, the tips of their fingers, round and smooth, peeped continually through the lace like little pink shells. Like, just sometimes yeah. the way she described things is just so beautiful and, like, so delightful. Her, her language is just exquisite. Yeah. And she has a, a real way of, like, conveying, like, the time of day, the season as it's changing, right? You know, Um light and dark, you know, down in Riverside, you know, the, the houses kind of loom over each other. So, you know, it becomes dusk earlier than the Riverside. And I can really picture these, these sort of like formerly magnificent mansions that have now been taken over by like these squatters in there, you know, maybe there's like peeling wallpaper or something crazy like that. You know, I can really picture that. Yeah. And she does a really good job of making this place feel very um, vibrant and alive and changing you know, like even like little details that are just kind of throwaway details. But like when in that in that scene where we first meet um, Lord Michael and he's escaping down the side of the building, um, because having ivy on the side of your uh, your home is no longer in fashion, 
all of right. the ivy had been like torn off and like it's and it's just such a silly like throwaway um so, like 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 little detail but it has real effect on what's happening in the story at that moment mm-hmm. it's good world building as well right. it gives you a sense that there's other rules and right. social mores they're talking about like what colors are in fashion and you know mocking them for like oh you're you know you want to buy a bunch of fabric from last year's colors it's like oh you know maybe peacock blue years. who <laughs> wears peacock blue <laughs> right, exactly. remember that and black. Only stage villains wear black. I'm not going to wear black. <laughs> right, right. In transitioning this to a gaming conversation, I would love to see like a D100 or maybe even a D1000 or uh, whatever table about like um, about trends and styles and fashions. And what you do is you roll roll on it once to see what's in style now. And then you roll on it again to find out like what thing is incredibly gauche right now. And on the off chance that you roll the same thing for both of them, then that means that like it's coming back in style, but a lot of people are like really pushing against it. Um, I don't know. Right. That could be for Zoolander, the role-playing game. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it certainly would be for, uh, yeah. And obviously you get reaction modifiers for, uh, you know, but if you're like, so totally gauche that you're over the top that you might be able to set the new trend, right? And then bring it right back around. <laughs> so Adam, which character are you playing from this book in the Swords Point RPG? Oh man. I think I, I would kind of, I think uh, Michael is the most interesting character to play. I think St. Saint, Veer Saint is too like perfect. You know what I mean? Michael is more of a, like you were saying, he's more of a human character. St. Saint, Saint is like this, like, he doesn't have any weaknesses in a sense, except for maybe, you know, Alec, you know, being his Achilles heel. So I would say Michael. Michael's a fun character to play. How about you, Dan? Who are you playing? Mm, yeah, well, uh, uh, definitely Michael's my first choice. I think it'd be quite interesting to play Lord Horn, actually. Um, well, that's a good point. Let's all pick somebody different. So this, we're, 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 we're at, we all have to, we're stuck with well, what is left over. Because well, I think a, sorry, sorry, go, on, go on, Hoy. Well, I mean, there's two, two things here. You could be playing a Riverside only game, a Hill only game, or a game where the two meet. So that would be kind of inform your choices too. Sure. But, yeah, anyway, uh, go on. Yeah. But, but, so Dan, you're going to go with Lord Horn. Lord Horn. Yeah, is it, yeah. I'm not. I, I mean, I think it's someone who's rich and proud, and um, but but growing old and and unaware he's being outmaneuvered. I think he could be a really interesting player. But but if if I'm having a Riverside character, I really like Ginny Vandal um, mm-hmm. because she she's kind of Sharon Osbourne to Hugo's Aussie. So he's taken him out of <laughs> despair and alcoholism and made him into a star. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So just so you're not taking two characters off the table, though, we're going to say Sorry. this is Lord Horn. So, yeah. Joseph, who are you picking? I Michael and Horn. Am, I, I'm tempted to go with Alec just to let my inner chaotic neutral out of the <laughs> out of the corral. Your inner bosey, exactly. <laughs> your inner your inner bossy bottom. Just sitting there and saying, cutting things and having Saint Veer stab people on a whim. <laughs> <laughs> Hoy, who are you picking? Um. If I'm doing a Riverside game, maybe Willie, the pickpocket. I think he's a, a funny character, you know, running around. He, see, he kind of knows things and he kind of like, oh, and I already took the coin. I won't tell them where you are, but I kind of, you know, you kind of want to stay away from there because, you know, they already know I'm looking for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nimble know? Willie's a good character. Rick, yep. who are you picking? I'm going to pick Catherine because she's kind of trying to struggle between both worlds continually. 
and is kind of being crushed by both, but somehow trying to like, she and Michael have interesting story arcs where they're really grappling with like what it means to be them. Mm-hmm. So the, the role playing, leaning into the role playing part, I suppose the gaming part, like they have these interesting character arcs. Whereas, you know, Vincent and Michael are just amazing and all, they're almost like super NPCs. Like I felt that Michael and Captain are like, like low level characters just trying to like struggle with all this. You know, um, different classes. Yeah. yeah, I love that nobody has picked St. Veer, and I'm also not going to pick St. Veer. My first choice would have been Horn. My second choice would have been Alec. But um, with who we have left, it's kind of a toss-up between the Duchess and Vincent Applethorpe for me, but I'm mm-hmm. going to go with Applethorpe. I think he would be a really fun character to play. Mm-hmm. And Applethorpe actually did really remind me, you know, it was a phase when I was doing a lot of martial arts. He did really, again, I think Alan Kushner must have known people who were, uh, real really serious practitioners of the you know fencing with the martial arts because he did really remind me of a couple of my teachers in the way he was his utter focus and also his sort of two-tiered looking at like okay well these people i'm not going to get angry at them these students because they're never actually going to be that great so i'm I'm only going to get them as good as they get and as much as they pay for the ones i'm going to get angry are the ones who actually have the potential to be great you know and those are the ones i'm going to be hard on you know and so he did remind me of, of, a, of a number of martial arts teachers that I knew also. So, yeah. Yeah. So um, I just had to pull it up. So when, while you were saying that, it made me think about this, um, how he almost, almost a glow he projected when he demonstrated a move. Lord Michael wondered if this is what was meant by flair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Applethorpe does have flair. Yeah. Um, so let's also look at some other stuff we might want to steal from this. Um, Adam, what are you, what do you want to, what do you want to take from this? Oh, I don't know. The whole idea of like honor and reputation. Mm -hmm. And there's like, there's two tracks to this. It's really interesting. There's the, the nobles on the Hill have their sense of honor and the people in Riverside have their sense of honor. And like the people on the Hill don't recognize that the people in Riverside have this sense of honor. Is really interesting. Mm-hmm. So it's like a two-tiered thing, you know. Like the only thing honor and a class system. Yeah. yeah. And um the only thing that I can think of in gaming is your uh, credit rating in Call of Cthulhu that's anything remotely like it. Right, you know. Right. But Bushido uh, had the on ON system. Yeah. Right. Oh, exactly okay. for this. Yeah. Or I think about how in the um, Vampire the Masquerade, you've got your humanity tracker i feel like your your honor tracker could work in a similar way where when you do things that increase your honor it might increase when you're doing things in the game that might increase your character's honor there's a chance it'll go up if you do something that would potentially decrease it there's a chance it'll go down things like that and i guess the question also would be sorry is honor and our honor and reputation the same track or are they two different things that you know um are like parallel tracks right um, because, you know, obviously Horn has a certain kind of reputation, but it's not necessarily about honor, although he perceives it to be about honor, right? <laughs> right. Um, among others. So, and obviously in the, the women's world, there's a different, uh, you know, sense of what honor con- constitutes too. So anyway, go on. And uh, Dan, what do you want to steal? One really specific image that, that the mirror in the near dark where mm. something appears to be moving is absolutely brilliant. So good. Right. And how he doesn't want to have a large mirror. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, this is a little, 
yeah, no, that's that's beautiful. Joseph, what are you stealing? Well, um, go, going back to what Adam was saying, if you have the the two sets, you have the hill and the river ciders, you also have to have some mechanism for their interaction where if you're playing a hill level character, you have to be able to recruit river ciders to do your dirty work. If you're playing a river cider, you have to have a hill character occasionally come as, as a patron that you may or may not really want and figuring out what happens when one when a person on one track does not follow through on the expectations of the person on the other track and how all of that meshes together. This makes me think of, um, I think, Ars Magica, right? You play the wizard, but you also play their, ser- their servants. I almost feel like to really play a game in Riverside or the world of Riverside and get the full opportunity, you would almost have to have like multiple characters. You have a character who is a hill character, a character who's a Riverside character, and so that you're not you're not like sitting outside of a scene. You always get to be in every scene as a player. But here's here's my Riverside, or here's my character who can travel between the two worlds, like Catherine, right? So that you can always be in every scene rather than like, okay, well, I'm playing Lord Horn, I have to sit out this whole scene, right? No, now I'm going to play his flunky or somebody else in his little circle, right? So that we can, uh, you know, extend the interests of this faction, if you will. I like that a lot. Yeah. Rick, what are you stealing? These are all really great suggestions. So then while I was thinking of something else, since you took the best suggestions, I thought, what if you had, what if the characters do some kind of heist or something or other, but then they get caught and then they have to go on trial. So imagine the characters having to role play their own defense and so on. And as the GM, you can introduce some character like Alec coming back, who's coming kind of to the rescue, but the player characters have to literally, um, rather than just you know, reside on dice rolls for charisma, they actually have to articulate their defense. Mm-hmm. And then you have back and forth, and you could have, say, if, if one player's char- player character died, you could ha- have the actual player play the... Um, what is the the attorney that's actually trying to get them sentenced? So you could actually give people different roles within the court scene. I've never seen that done in role playing, but it's kind of like a no brainer. It's like that could actually be a lot of fun. That's purely role playing and nothing to do with say your fighting skills or you can't use magical spells. So you could slip it into any genre. Mm-hmm. Essentially, that could be an interesting thing that hasn't been explored. Again, an interstitial way to do it. I like it, especially. I also really liked how this book had the different class based courts. And I also think that would be a fun thing to do as well. Um, figuring out ways to make sure that if you are in legal trouble in this urban adventure, that you're manipulating things in such a way that you're going to end up in the court that is going to best serve what you're particularly doing. I also think is a poten- potentially interesting um, addition to that as well. Uh, Hoy, what do you want to steal? Hmm. Um, I mean, there's, there's so much, right? I mean, the overall idea that this city is an organic thing, right? And it has, um, you know, as Adam had mentioned, this, this sets of rules that apply in different areas. Um, so I like that, just that level of richness. And like some things just don't make sense. They're just tradition, right? They're just there. Um, so I like that. I like the fact, for example, the whole, all of, a lot of the hinges on Richard, like not realizing that he can't ever be blackmailed. All this other stuff has to happen because if he's blackmailed, that's the end of him, right? Then he's just another hired, you know, a goon, 
<laughs> right? Um, so players are always going to want to push back against that. But if you can sort of like get people to say, hey, it's really interesting to play within the context of that alignment as such, but playing within the context of these systems of belief that your characters have. Um, I mean, there's a lot of games that will do that, right? You you go against your, your, your perceived survival, but you gain a point for your, you know, staying true to the, the whatever the social mechanism that if that's in the game. Um, so I guess it's a non-specific answer, but I'm just saying basically everything that you guys have all articulated points to a certain kind of game. Can it be done in an OSR context or, uh, you know, or is it totally story game? Is it LARP? I guess it depends on the sort of which emphasis you want to push to a little bit. If you want to go a little bit more towards the actual dueling, then it can be a little bit more a trad, like, you know, RuneQuest, uh, very realistic you know, RuneQuest or GURPS for very realistic dueling. And, you know, RuneQuest has good social rules and so does, so does GURPS. So you could push it more in that direction, but it can be um, potentially a little bit too mechanical for some people. Or do you want to go a little bit more open-ended, free-form, like, uh, I don't know, Blades in the Dark or, or Fate? You know, then, then it's really more about what kind of agreements we come to at the table amongst as players and GMs. So I'm sorry for the sort of non-specific answer, but I'm, I'm just thinking about, like, it's really about how you want to approach it. I like you, it. Um, for me, on the, on the macro scale, I would love to just steal Riverside. I think the yeah. idea of having a district in your town where the guards don't even go there, the watch stays clear of it. And it's a place where, like, essentially, like, the thieves kind of rule it, but it's not quite as dark as you would think. Like, I like how she talked about how everybody in, who lives in Riverside thinks they're evil, but they're really not all that different than anybody else. Um, so I kind of like this idea of, like, this this quarter that, like, everybody's terrified of and they don't go into. But, like, if that's your world, it's actually not as bad as people think it is. But then on the micro scale in Riverside, I really liked the old market. And there is this specific like little um, thing about it that I thought was cool. Um, I've got a quote here. The old market wasn't old, nor was it properly a market. A square of once elegant houses had been gutted at the ground floor so that each house opened at the front. The effect was like a series of little box stage sets, each containing a fire and a group of Riversiders crowded around it, their hands stuffed under their armpits or held out to the fire engaged in what could only be loosely termed as marketing, a little dicing, a little flirting, drinking, and trying to sell each other stolen objects, shifting from foot to foot in the cold. I love it. I want it. I want to have a Riverside and I want to have uh, the old market in Riverside. I think that'd be a great place for the PCs to go and check out. So I, I love just the entire city. Yeah. Reminds me a lot. Do you remember if uh, maybe Joseph, you remember, uh, do you remember the, the thieves, uh, it was a thieves guild supplements that came out. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I just a couple months ago on a whim bought myself a copy of the free city of Haven, which was their big, one of their big city box sets from back in the mid eighties. And that would, I, I that might be, if I was going to try to run something Riverside, that might be a good, setting for it and yeah the thieves guild rules where there were more concerned with urban stuff and you might want to shift the focus to something a little more swashbuckling but mm. um but not so much going into dungeons and bashing monsters on the head it's although nice. again it just as i'm sitting here thinking of this now i'm thinking the ideal way to do 
Riverside would be as a fiasco playset. Hmm. Oh, fun. Yeah. Just give everybody your roles and sit around the table and watch everything go belly up. So are you more interested in playing a Riverside game, a Nobles game, or what Hoy was kind of saying, where maybe you have these two um, these two tracks that are running at the same time and you're kind of hopping between them and playing both? I kind of like both because what one of the things that makes it so unique is the interplay between the two worlds. That there is plenty of stuff out there with um with thieves running around in dingy quarters and there's stuff with nobles in their palaces, but it's the it's the interaction between those two that really kind of kind of makes it what it is, I think. That whether that's everybody has one character on each side of the line or whether some people are playing Hill, some people are playing Riverside and just you structure the scenario so that everybody has to be interacting with each other. What if you had two different groups? You might have to do this remotely or two GMs. What if one group is the Riversiders and they're committing crimes and killing people and whatever, and the other group is the Hillsiders trying to like track them down and bring them to justice? I don't know how you'd role play that. Maybe it's a convention thing, but that could be an interesting way to do it. Not at the same table. Uh-huh. I, yeah, I feel like reading this, you, 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 you can get a lot of different kind of gaming inspiration from this because you can potentially come up with a good, some good adventure ideas that could really go to all kinds of different gaming systems. It could be in a DCC Lankmar game or an OSR game or a fiasco game. You can kind of come up with adventures that you can throw into any of those things. Uh, but also there's like great characters and great set pieces. Yes, on guard. Yeah. <laughs> or flashing blades from back in the day too. Yeah. yeah, and I Googled Swords Point RPG just being curious if there was such a thing. And there is, but it has nothing to do with Alan Kushner's Swords Point. It's a swashbuckling game. Um, would, would it possibly, I, I'm not familiar with it, but swashbuckling seems like the right direction Oh, absolutely. You might be yeah. able to tell, I mean, I don't know the RPG system, but you might be able to tell a similar story that's being told here with any kind of swashbuckling RPG, potentially. Mm. Some will be better. As long as there's rules for flair. Yeah. What's yeah. that? As long as, as, long as there's rules for flair. Flair, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Make an attack roll that's modified by your charisma. Um, and I like that there's, an, there's allusions to the world beyond, right? Because constantly they're going to their estates or they're talking about the uh, the Weaver's Guild is, you know, burning the looms or I think it's the Weaver's Guild. Um, so that there is a, an implied uh, economic structure upon which the city has to rest. Uh, we just haven't seen it yet. Um, so it's very kind of slightly feels very much like Ancien Regime from France, you know, just before the revolution, even though the kings have long been gotten rid of. It feels it has that vibe. Yeah, and that place where um, Lord Ferris is being exiled to also like just the little bit of a description we got of that place sounds like an incredible location for adventure. Yeah. You, uh, no, Abel was your, your, Abel was I, your elbow, right? <laughs> it's like Napoleon. <laughs> what? Yeah. Uh, just like when Napoleon was exiled for the first time, but he wasn't really exiled. So, you know, you can have that game and have that game about you scheming to return to Riverside also to, to the city too. That would be an interesting you know, expansion of the scope of the game. You know, if you got kicked out. While you're somewhere up in the North with the fur clad barbarians eating fish. Exactly. <laughs> um, 
And that's always the, the implication too, right? Like, is it so truly so horrible to be exiled from Gormenghast, right? Uh, maybe it is, and because that's all you know, but that would be the game like trying to get back into this horrible place, which kind of seems kind of funny, but, you know. <laughs> and trying to convince others that it's not such a horrible place and they should come with you and right, your right. followers and like help you in your political games. So, I mean, I think there's a, a really... Uh, large a lot of room for both zooming in and zooming out in terms of scope in, in a game that would be a riverside uh, or a city and riverside game cool does anybody else have any gaming thoughts or ideas you want to explore with the group i've got one which is just that the, the biggest flaw in in runequest 2 was that when you became when you when you had two very very competent characters fighting each other you just went hit parry hit parry and actually here Having Sinvir, who's probably 150 or 200 percent at, at attack and parry, and probably 50 or 80 percent defense, actually that works in this context, and it and it serves to explain how he's able to fight to fight off virtually any opponent and choose the moment where he strikes the way that he does. Um, but I think in terms, but so I think that mechanic is is brilliant in this particular context, where in general it's it's the big floor in RuneQuest. But in terms of all the other gaming elements, I'm very much bowing to the rest of the group. Dan, could that be saying RuneQuest, normally it's just like roll, 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 roll. You're not saying, aha, I now try and do it this way. And maybe the GM could add five or 10% because they're adding flair each time. Maybe that's the flair mechanic. Yeah. They have to articulate what they're doing. uh, Absolutely. And I think when the princess bride... Yes. Right. I am not left-handed. <laughs> right. yes. Neither am I. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you get to do like throw one of those in per uh I don't know, like X number of rounds, right? Like aha, you know, the little reversal, right? You can't just do like every single round, but you have to like, you know, then you have to go over the rules every once and then again. Now you get to or maybe you get a little like uh deck of cards where you have a little you know, like a little small hand. You can you can either choose to play them or not, but but once you played it, you've played it, right? Because people know that move now, right? To Joseph's point, have you thought of adding Princess Bride to the list of potential books? Oh, that definitely would be a, a great one to have in there. That is so role-playing. Yeah. <laughs> I will give it a bump. Yep. Oh, please do. <laughs> <laughs> I bet that will win the uh, survey that goes out. Right, right. Did anyone ever get the uh, secret chapter from William Goldman? You were supposedly, you know, he says, oh, that was boring and stuff that. And back in the day when he said, if you wrote to him, he said, if you write to me, I'll send you the secret chapter. So whether there was an actual secret chapter that he would send to you. Um, I don't know if it was ever included in later editions or not. So, I did not. Yeah. I had no idea such a thing existed. Same here. Another thing that I think might be fun is um, setting it up so that in, in some random town, um, or in some nation, murder is legal as long as you can get a noble to sanction it in some kind of a specific way. Uh, that also might be kind of a fun thing to work with in a campaign setting. And even then, there's obviously there's rules about it, right? And then that's why they even have these swordsmen, so that they don't have these like little gang wars between these noble houses, mm-hmm. right, in the cities. Um, right, and the question is whether you are the the low end person who is trying to get someone to sanction things so they can go out and be your natural blood, you know, bloodthirsty murder hobo self or someone who just comes to you. He's like, I've got a job for you. And you really can't turn them down. 
Uh, and they because you can see the swordsman is constantly getting pressure. It's not just monetary pressure, right? Oh, we want Saint Peter. He's the best, and that's the whole premise of the story, right? He's, people just constantly getting pressure put on him, right? He's a useful tool, and do the player characters become useful tools at a certain point, or are they the ones who are looking for the tools? Right. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. So, Adam, do you have any final thoughts you want to share? Um, I think I have a word. Uh, if I don't screw it up, uh. Dishabil? Is that how you say it? Or Dishabil? How do you say that? Does anyone know? That mean, uh, it means like partially dressed or undressed. That's a good one. Dishabil? Like shabby? Uh, it sounds gosh. French. It's, it's, yeah. it's French. I don't know the pronunciation, but yeah. That should be the Hagaxian world. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah that's the word. Nice. You, got, you guys will have to Google it and look it up. To, Other than Shay's I, I, I probably butchered the pronunciation in two different ways. Adam, do you know how it's spelled? Uh, I think it's D-I-S-H-A-B-I-L-L-E. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, here we go. Yeah. The state of being only partially or part, only partly or scantily clothed. Mm-hmm. I like it. Um, Do you remember what, uh, what chapter that was from, or specifically? Or it, it was toward the beginning where they're talking about how the nobles would pass the notes to each other in the morning, how like a normal morning was like, let's lounge around and sip yep. their stupid chocolate and write each other notes and everything. It was in that, and they would say they would be partially dressed like until around noon and yeah. get themselves together for lunch or whatever. Right. <laughs> First known use, 1673. I just looked that up on Merriam-Webster. <laughs> So Dan, final thoughts? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I've really not got much, much to add. I mean, I think we've covered all all the points I wanted to. I think it's terrific. Rick, final thoughts? Um, it'd be interesting to compare this to Thieves' World, which covers some of the same ground. It'd be a nice contrast. Um, I don't know if Thieves' World is has been covered already or is on the list, no, but that would be a right. great one. Yeah. I read yeah. that years ago, and it's like they're all. It's like Niftaling. They're all trying to do heists all the time in the underworld of that city. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. roughly the same, roughly contemporary, because I think uh, yeah. Thieves World was like 83 or somewhere around there. So um, 79. Yeah. 79, yeah. So, Joseph, final thoughts? Um, just if you did enjoy this book, I would highly recommend uh, Privilege of the Sword, which is the second in the series. It takes place about 20 years later. But within the context of happening 20 years later, it does resolve some of the threads from this book. Um, also, I feel compelled to point out that I'm wearing my Litograph's uh, Swords Point t-shirt. Nice. Uh, look, lovely. <laughs> I love is it. Is that text? Is the background text? Uh, yes, Joseph? it's a, it's actual text from the book is the... Wow, amazing. Oh, wow. That's really cool. I've been watching that the whole time, Joseph. Been, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> that is really cool. Um, awesome. So I wanted to go ahead and share the books that we've got that'll be up for a vote when this episode is posted. It's going to be for episode 117. It'll be Marion Zimmer Bradley's The Planet Savers, Emma Bull's War for the Oaks, Neil Gaiman's Stardust, and Clark Ashton Smith, the end of the story. So interesting assortment. Some cool stuff that we might be covering on episode one. Se- well, one of them we will be covering on episode one seventeen. So it should be fun. Oh, um, 
Yeah. And I was so surprised. Like I jewel in the skull won. I, I really thought a princess of Mars was going to win and jewel in the skull just crushed a princess of Mars. It's also a short book so people can get through it quickly. <laughs> I think that, that might've helped. I, I hope and assume princess of Mars will get another shot at the crown. Oh, of yeah. course. Of course it will. Of course. I mean, even some of the ones that, uh, you know, every single one that I put up there is like, I want to read it. So, you know, I just had to figure <laughs> out like what, you know. Yeah, and Source Point, um, I think it was the second time I included Source Point in a poll before it won. I'm pretty sure it lost a previous poll. Yeah, I don't remember. I might be wrong. I might be misremembering. Um, I'm so glad we read it. This, this, this has been literally on my shelf for years. And like, I picked it up again, I think just because of the Tom Canty cover and, you know, the, the, the back blurb. And, uh, you know, finally got the opportunity to read it. So... Yeah, good stuff. All right, gang. So this has been a fun conversation. Um, okay, speaking of short books, though, um, all of the ones that are currently up for a vote are all over 400 pages. So <laughs> <laughs> Maybe people needed a break. My poll or, or the poll that you just put? There, you're about to put um, your poll. The oh, yeah, unfortunately. Yes. Alan Moore, Tim Powers, and Theodore Ros- Rosneck. Those are all. Yeah, yeah, those yeah. Are all at least 400 pages. Right. And Adam, you were correct. There was a theme. It was secret histories. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. You got my comment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. All right, gang. We'll see y'all next time. All right. See y'all soon. Bye. 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 The library is closed.